Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Coming up in a few minutes, a conversation I had earlier this week with political commentator Joy Reed of MSNBC. She's coming to speak in Iowa City this weekend. It's interesting. She's the daughter of two immigrants uh, to the U.S., one from Africa, her father, and from South America, her mother. Her parents met here in Iowa. Uh, I'll talk with her about uh, the challenges she's faced as a black female journalist, obviously very successful, and uh, talk with her about the current state of our politics. But before that, let's devote the first part of our program to some health news in our state. Michaela Ram joins me, health care reporter for the Des Moines Register. Hi, Michaela. Hey, Ben. Very interested in having you uh, talk us through a couple of the stories you've covered uh, these past few days. Let's start with uh, the Unity Point Health story. This is one of the uh, Iowa's largest healthcare systems now deciding to charge patients to message their doctor through an online patient portal. Explain the change. Yeah, absolutely. So beginning uh, the 14th, uh, Valentine's Day, actually, um, Unity Point Health implemented a new policy stating that uh, patients' insurance will be billed if they send a message to their provider through MyChart. MyChart is a secure electronic communication system that uh, Unity Point and, quite frankly, many other hospitals across the, the state use to allow patients ease of access for contacting their healthcare provider and to do things like schedule appointments and view test results. But moving forward, the health system says to help reimburse providers for their clinical time and expertise responding to these messages. Um, it's going to be a cost to, to answer those questions now. Is this affecting all electronic communication with Unity Point by patients? No. N- not all of them. Um, there are specific exceptions that they allow under this. Um, so, for example, if your doctor emails you directly, you won't be charged for that. Um, or if you reach out to your provider about an issue that you saw your provider for within the last seven days, um, that also won't be charged per se. So why is this significant? Because um, I guess we have to talk about what this costs patients. Unity Point Health and other health care providers are seeing that uh, patients are getting, you know, um, information, um, valuable information, uh, but not having to pay for it. And that, that's uh, hurting Unity Point's uh, bottom line and so forth. So we haven't heard if this is related to uh, hurting bottom line to respond to these messages. What it really comes back to is an increase in uh, messages that they've been seeing their providers receive really since COVID-19. You know, when when people were in isolation, they were really utilizing things like telehealth and things like MyChart at an increased rate. And um, for some providers at Unity Point, they were seeing as much as 50% increase in the messages that they would receive. Um, and essentially, Unity Point Health is arguing is that that takes time, that takes effort to respond to all of these messages. And so they are just looking to reimburse their providers adequately for that time and effort to uh, devote to these messages that they're getting from patients. Mm-hmm. And is this part of a national trend? It is, absolutely. So i uh, I did some digging when I was writing this story, and it seems that quite a growing number of healthcare organizations nationwide are 
beginning to bill insurance for providers' time to respond to these kind of questions through these systems. Um, it really kind of traces back to the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which introduced billing codes for providers who receive Medicare reimbursement um, to get uh, payment for responding to patients through secure messaging portals. Um, they were seeing the same thing that Unity Point Health talked about, that there's been quite an increase in uh, patients reaching out to their doctors through their messaging system. So they introduced these codes to help help these hospitals kind of cover those costs. And since then, dozens of major organizations have implemented similar policies. Um, you know, for example, uh, most hospitals in the Chicago area, I found do this. The Cleveland Clinic in Ohio also implemented a policy late last year. Um, and these costs can range, but really they're all kind of making the same argument that these policies um, really help reimburse for the time and effort it takes to get these messages back to patients in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, were Unity Point uh, patients notified of this beforehand? I wonder if there's been any time for any reaction there. That is a good question. It's unclear if patients were notified, but they did receive a message when they logged into my chart Tuesday morning. Um, it had a big logo that said, uh, heads up, this will this could now cost you if you're sending a message that fits this particular criteria. Yeah. Do we know what it might mean for an average person who is with Unity Point Health uh, for additional costs? Yeah. So Unity Point Health says um, they will first charge their insurance um, for this. So they may not see any costs, but of course, it's unclear if, you know, insurance will cover the entirety of these costs or uh, what that might look like. But for those patients who don't have insurance coverage or whose uh, plans don't reimburse for this particular service, we could see a range of fees. Um, at the baseline, it could be $36 or it could be up to $70, depending on the time required to review the chart or to provide clinical guidance is what health system officials have said. Right. And of course, the uh, worries there that this may discourage patients from reaching out in the first place for needed care, right? That is what advocates for uh health price transparency have said, you know, they they worry that if patients know that there could be a charge for asking a question that's important to ask your doctor, um, that they would choose not to do so. Health system officials with Unity Point said that's not their goal. They don't want to dissuade patients from from sending those emails to doctors. But of course, advocates say that that could that could be a very real possibility. Michaela Ram, let's uh, talk about another article uh, that you uh, recently wrote for the Des Moines Register. Iowa lawmakers considering expanding a program to fund the anti-abortion nonprofits across the state. Uh, And as you point out in your article, this comes even before the first dollar has been distributed to pregnancy resource centers. Give us some context here, because this reaches back to some legislation that was passed last year in 2022, right? Yes. So last year, state lawmakers passed a bill to establish a program called the More Options for Maternal Support. Um, They allocated $500,000 to the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services to create a network of subcontractors that would allow uh, these uh, pregnancy resource centers, which are also known as crisis pregnancy centers, to receive state dollars to support their mission and to support the work that they do. And so now state lawmakers are considering another bill, this current legislative session, that would bump that funding up to $2 million. Um, That one is still making its way through both the House and the Senate, so we don't have a definitive answer on that yet. But 
That is true. Um, they are looking right now to expand the program even before the first dollar has been allocated to one of these pregnancy resource centers. Mm-hmm. And explain, how does this fit into the overall goal plan by Republican lawmakers in the state to reduce abortions? So it's very interesting. Um, when you talk to lobbyists who are in support of measures like this, they, they describe this as part of the two-pronged approach to the pro-life movement. Um, you know, one side is those traditional abortion restrictions that we're seeing across the country, right, aimed at banning or reducing abortions in the state. And the other approach is really to offer support um, to women and families dealing with unplanned pregnancies. Um, And they see this measure to fund pregnancy resource centers as a part of that, you know, to give women the resources they need to keep their pregnancy and to give them the resources that would dissuade them from obtaining abortions in the first place. Mm-hmm. So we have these existing crisis pregnancy centers in Iowa, dozens of them, and then this new twist here. How um, are they receiving this mom's program funding? Um, and, and is there opposition to what's going on? So they haven't received any funding yet. Um, it sounds like the state is still working to establish the program. Um, they plan to put out RFPs in the coming days to um, uh establish a program administrator to network with these subcontractors. But as of right now, uh, the pregnancy resource centers that I talked to, they really don't know a lot about this program yet. They really have not received a lot of information about what this funding would look like, what the requirements of the program would look like. And so there are folks who are very positive, positively inclined towards this funding. They, they appreciate that Republicans are making this effort to fund their missions. But At the same time, they're pretty leery about it, not knowing anything really about this program. They don't know if there could be strings attached that would negatively impact the work that they do. Mm -hmm. As you point out in your article, we have a minute or so left, um, this is also directing funding uh, to uh, fatherhood programming. What what would that be? That is a good question. Um, At this point, we're not entirely sure what that uh, would look like, but really the goal of the or the language of the legislation says that they want to fund fatherhood initiatives to help the men involved with unintended pregnancies with certain things, um, that it can include things like um, returning to society after incarceration or helping find a job or help manage childhood or child support payments, um, basically to create this programming to help the, the men in these situations. Mm-hmm. Um, there is so much action on this front concerning abortion uh, access. Um, uh, remind us, perhaps before we say goodbye, Michaela, uh, because of all the proposals out there, what are Iowa's current abortion laws? So abortion is still legal in Iowa up to 20 weeks. Um, there is a 24-hour waiting period, but beyond that, abortion is still obtainable in the state. Um Reynolds, uh, there has been movement in the court. Uh, Governor Reynolds has asked the Iowa District Court to reinstate the so-called heartbeat law, the 2018 law that would have banned abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy. Um, The court has declined her request and is now being considered by the state Supreme Court. Um, So that has not gone into effect, and we're still waiting to see if the court will agree with Governor Reynolds on that particular proposal. In the meantime, um, uh, at least some Republican lawmakers backing a proposal for a total ban on abortions uh, from conception on. Um, that's also part of this mix, isn't it? 
Yes, there has been a proposal put on the floor um, from my understanding, but it's interesting. Reynolds has said, you know, her priority is to let the courts kind of decide that abortion matter. Um, and rather than let the state legislator kind of take that lead. So it'll be interesting to see how far that particular proposal goes. But it seems that Reynolds is content to keep that particular question to the judicial system. Okay, Michaela Ram, healthcare reporter for the Des Moines Register. Thank you, Michaela. Thank you. Coming up after a short break, a conversation I had earlier this week with political commentator Joy Reid of MSNBC. She's coming to Iowa to speak this weekend. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. My next guest is Joy Reid. Reed is a political analyst at MSNBC, host of The Read Out. She's the author of three books as well, Fracture, Barack Obama, The Clintons, and The Racial Divide. We Are the Change We Seek, The Speeches of Barack Obama. She co-edited that with Washington Post columnist E.J. Dion. Her latest book from 2019, The Man Who Sold America, Trump and the Unraveling of the American Story. Her columns have also appeared in many publications, including the New York Times, The Guardian, New York Magazine. Reed will be speaking this Sunday afternoon, February 18th, at Hancher Auditorium on the University of Iowa campus in Iowa City. It's a free event, but you'll need to get tickets, and those tickets are available online or at the Hancher box office. Hancher is an underwriter for Iowa Public Radio. Joy Reed, welcome to our program. Thanks, Ben. Great to be here. Great to have you with us. Uh, let's uh, start off um, with having you just tell us a little bit uh, about what you have planned for the Iowa audience uh, here. What are the messages uh, you want to bring to the University of Iowa campus? Well, of course, it is Black History Month. Um, and oddly enough, that has become a strangely controversial thing <laughs> in some places. Um, black history is, I think, has never been um, under more fire I would say since the 1960s, when you saw a lot of campuses witness protests, including on the Harvard campus, about the teaching of Black history, whether to teach it, whether it was a legitimate area of study um, for American students, whether in college or K through 12, um, we're kind of in that moment again, where the question of whether we teach a history that is comforting or a history that's accurate um, is the better course for young people. Um, it's become a real kind of new culture war. So I think that's one of the things that I'd love to talk about. I mean, we're doing literally Black history-related programming on my program, uh, and I'm writing a book about Medgar and Murley Evers at the moment. So, you know, I kind of live in the space where Black history is a good thing to know. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Why has that come to the fore now, become so controversial? Why have we be become 
less comfortable with recognizing the the racist past of the U.S.? I think this is part of the backlash. You know, there's been this ongoing rolling backlash since the election of President Obama, our first black president. You know, at first it created this kind of moment of good feeling where I think a lot of white Americans thought, oh, great, we're post-racial now. We elected President Barack Hussein Obama. That's behind us now. But it turned out that electing an African-American president just created more questions. And I think it also was a reminder based on the demographics of his electorate um, in which he won, you know, eight out of 10 non-white votes, but lost six out of 10 white Americans votes, but he still got elected and then got reelected, you know, first by 10 million votes and then by 5 million votes over the objections of a majority of white voters. I think that just exacerbated what was already a tension and a discomfort with the coming demographic reality. You know, this country is going to not have a white majority in my lifetime. And I think that that rolling disclosure, you know, of that um, impending demographic shift causes tremendous anxiety. Um, And I think that anxiety has been deliberately fueled, unfortunately, by some in media, some who make a profit from that kind of dialogue, and by others who want certain policies, you know, that stoking white anxiety help them to achieve. So I think for a lot of reasons, that anxiety has been exacerbated. Trump was part of that backlash, the election of him, what happened on January 6, 2021 was part of it. And now the next phase of it is for certain governors, people like Ron DeSantis, um, people like the governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, are saying, we're going to draw a line in the sand and say, we're going to protect the kind of gauzy version of the founding of this country, the, the gauzy version of American history that makes us comfortable. And we're going to fight anything that is an alternative to it, like the 1619 Project. Mm-hmm. And Joy, it's interesting you're coming to speak in Iowa, a state that twice put its electoral votes, uh, its popular vote toward Barack Obama, but also twice went in favor of, of Donald Trump. So that's interesting in the, the shift you've just described. It is. And there is this, you know, it's it's a small part of the electorate, but it's about 10 percent of the electorate that are called Obama to Trump voters. And that's a real thing. You know, there's a certain kind of voter that always votes for the outsider, whoever that outsider is. Um, They're not really married to party. They're not super party brand loyal. Um, And I think they saw voting for President Obama as kind of a middle finger, you know, to the establishment. And they saw Trump Mm. as the same thing. And I think also it's a demographic of voters who have certain economic needs that they saw President Obama or candidate Obama addressing when it came to health care, when it came to saying, you know, we're going to expand health care to make sure that everyone can afford it. Um, and I think they saw the same thing in Donald Trump, who was, you know, he literally ran. I, I can remember covering that election. And when we got to places like Iowa, places in the Midwest, places like Pennsylvania, places like Ohio, there was this ad that was running on loop on local stations. I was turned to local TV to see what's going on um, when I'm traveling during elections. And there was this ad called Man of Steel that Trump ran. Now, it didn't have Donald Trump's voice in it. And it didn't even really say Donald Trump. But it talked about the factories that are closing. It talked about the fact that all the good jobs were being exported out of the United States. It was giving a populist message that I think would have appealed if 
Barack Obama had given that message. You know what I mean? So I think there is an Obama to Trump voter that is an anti-establishment voter, and there always will be. Mm -hmm. I want to circle back uh, to... um... You've sort of previewed it to talking about 2024, what's ahead of us. But but I wanted to, to first um, uh, ask you a little bit about, you have an Iowa connection I, I didn't realize. You were born in Brooklyn, uh, but both of your parents are immigrants. Your father from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Your mother was from Guyana, uh, South America. Is it true they, they met in graduate school at the UI, the University of Iowa? They did. Um, they, strangely enough, my sister was born um, in Iowa City, <laughs> Iowa. Um, really? Yeah, my sister is an Iowa native. And it's interesting that um, they both came from completely different continents, but both wound up going you know, to graduate school in Iowa. And at the time, there was actually a pretty significant African diaspora in the state of Iowa um, at the University of Iowa. I mean, it just... It, it, I think what happened is these other countries like the Congo at the time had just achieved, you know, independence from Belgium and these young, you know, new governments in this sort of weaning themselves off of the colonial governance that they, you know, stuck with for a century. Um, they wanted to educate the particularly the young men from prominent families. And my father was from that kind of a family. And so they started sending them out. And um, President Kennedy at the time was really eager to take them in because Moscow was too. So there was this kind of interesting Cold War going on between the USSR and the US trying to attract the you know prominent young men from African families because they thought, well, we want to educate them here so they don't go to Moscow and go to university there. And then when they go back and run their countries, they're going to be pro-American. It was yeah. the reason President Obama's father wound up in in Hawaii. And, you know, these are people who are coming from, you know, these they didn't know much about the United States. They just like threw a dart, I think, <laughs> and said, let's find a good affordable education because they were paying for it. So they were like, you're going to Iowa. My father's best friend wound up at Pomona in California. And they just kind of threw a dart and sent them places. Um, my mother, I think, was a little bit more deliberate. <laughs> her government wasn't paying for her education. I have no idea how she ended up choosing Iowa, but that's where they met. And interestingly enough, my father lived um, off campus um, for the second half of his day in Iowa with a family, a white family. And the mm-hmm. mom um, who took him in like a son, um, her name was Joy Ann. And I am named after her. <laughs> Really? So there's a huge Iowa connection there. (laughs) I wonder when you reflect on how that shaped you growing up in the U.S., but with two immigrant parents, each from very different parts of the world, uh, connected with Iowa. What are your reflections about how that made you who you are today? It's interesting because, you know, in the town where, you know, we my, my, my parents then moved to New York. I was born in Brooklyn. And then when I was two, um, they picked up and moved to Denver, Colorado. My brother was born in Denver, and that's where I spent my formative years. And in that town, there was exactly one West Indian, my mom, and there was mm-hmm. there were four African families, um, and we were one of the four. The, and we were friends with all four, the Akias, the Chirungas, <laughs> the Lomenas, and there was one uh, additional family, the Okekes. So that was it. So we were the foreigners, you know, and it was just an interesting dynamic for me as an African-American, you know, as seeing myself as a, as being from Brooklyn, I was a super nerd. So saying I was from Brooklyn was like anti-bullying 
<laughs> tactics, right? It was like insurance <laughs> because I was a super nerd mm. with the Coke <laughs> bottle glasses. I mean, I read War and Peace for fun in in, in high school. You know, um, nice. I was super nerdy. <laughs> so, but you know, <laughs> but I, at least I was athletic. I could run track. I, I kind of tried to balance it. But that addition of being kind of a foreign kid, seen as a foreign kid, the food that I ate at home was Guyanese food. I can remember in, I want to say this was like fourth grade. We had this exercise where they asked everyone, what's your favorite food? And everyone said like traditional American foods. You know, this was a 80% African-American town. The rest were a mix of Mexican-Americans, not other kinds of Hispanics, just Mexican-Americans, and some Asian-Americans who were Hmong and Vietnamese and white people. That was it. There was not a lot of variety. So they all said like traditional American stuff. And I said, um, roti and curry. And the whole room went silent <laughs> and everyone stared at me. And I was <laughs> so what's so that? What's that? <laughs> right. Exactly. And I got teased for it for the rest of the day. So it was, it was an interesting dynamic. Um, my mother had very strict expectations about education, about the grades we were expected to get, about being at school every day, no cutting, you know? Um, and it, it just was different. It, it definitely felt like being kind of a foreigner, even though I am an American and I consider myself African-American. I lived in these kind of dual worlds and it was, you know, sometimes challenging, but I think it gave me a perspective. I can see America the way people who aren't from here see it. You know, I look at the country mm -hmm. with, I think, more objectivity, with the capability for objectivity. I don't, it doesn't personally hurt me to know that our founding was ugly, you know, that our founding was not glorious and that it was steeped in enslavement, you know, that's just what it is. And I think because I have a little bit more emotional distance from it, I can kind of look at the world the way the rest of the world looks. I, I can look at America the way the rest of the world looks at us. Mm -hmm. If you've just joined us, my guest, uh, this portion of the program, Joy Reed, a political analyst at MSNBC, host of The Read Out. Uh, now, I wanted to ask you uh, about your your hurdles, the obstacles there. You've hosted the readout now, mm, what, what, about three years, huh? After the retirement, uh, you've taken the, the time slot after the retirement of hardball host Chris Matthews. What, what would you say are the chief obstacles you've faced as a black female journalist? I think that, you know, growing up, other than, you know, Gwen Ifill and Connie Chung, um, a handful of black journalists, the face of news has always been white men. You know, we were a Dan Rather household, but whether you're listening to Tom Brokaw or Dan Rather or Peter Jennings, that was the sort of voice of God. You know, um, it, it always was a white man, Walter Cronkite. You know, my mom loved Walter Cronkite as well. You know, I grew up watching, listening to Ted Koppel um, on Nightline. And so I think the first thing is just the representation, the lack of representation of knowing, of thinking I could even do this job. I never, I was a news junkie as a kid. I watched Nightline from the very beginning. I was fascinated with the Iran hostage crisis. I would sit up and watch Nightline with my mom, but I never projected myself into that chair. I never saw myself doing that job because I really didn't see anyone doing it. So I think the biggest hurdle was just even seeing myself doing this, you know, I always wanted to write books, be an author. I thought of things I would do, but I went, I was a pre-med when I went to college. Um, I'd never pictured myself doing that. Pre-med, pre-med. You wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> well, yeah. West Indian kids are all pretty much required to you 
be a doctor, a lawyer, or an architect. <laughs> and literally, mm -hmm. my yeah. my sister, my brother, and I were like, we were going to be doctor, lawyer, and architect. That's literally the expectation of every West Indian kid. Oh. Um, and so I uh -huh. made the mistake of saying I wanted to be a doctor when I was like 12. So I was tracked into that track. But I didn't really want to. And after my mom passed away, um, just before I started Harvard, I just, there was no way I could even walk into a hospital. So I, I knew that wasn't going to work. So I had to find something else to be. Um, and I took a year off and I actually wound up living in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, right down the street from where Spike Lee was. And I got fascinated just watching all this production. And it was like black bohemia at that time, um, Fort Greene. And I went back and decided to switch my major to film. And that was kind of my first track of pulling myself out of the doctor track and saying, I can be something else. I think that was the second hurdle of just kind of imagining myself differently and imagining what kind of career I could have. So long story short, I wound up, you know, working in Florida when my husband and I moved, when we got married and moved to Florida, I wound up writing for the morning show at the Fox of Miami and then working at NBC um, as a digital editor. I was literally doing the web um, in the early days when they didn't really respect the web, you know, in the news business. And then I just mm -hmm. kind of wound up here through a very circuitous path. Um, but yeah, I think it was just imagining myself here because there were no role models. Yeah. T tell me how the, the working on two presidential campaigns fit into that timeline. So I was working at the NBC affiliate, um, well, which I'd switched to um, partly because it was closer to my house and I had young children. It was a better commute. But I wound up quitting because I deeply opposed the Iraq war and I opposed the kind of jingoism that I saw in not just NBC, but just the media in general. Um, I found it off-putting um, and I realized this was not a place for me. So I left. Um, I wound up taking this training called the Wellstone Action Network. And it, it was you know, named after Paul Wellstone, the great liberal mm -hmm. lion. And um, I took this training in media to be a press secretary. And I wound up being a press secretary in 2004, um, working for a organization called America Coming Together that was helping John Kerry from the outside. Uh, we lost. <laughs> John Kerry lost. And then um, some of those same people were working on the Obama campaign four years later when I was now in talk radio producing and co-hosting a talk radio show. And they pulled me back in on the Obama campaign. And I think the experience of working on those two campaigns made me kind of a perfect like political analyst. And so I wound up doing the job I do now because I wound up being on Chris Matthews' show a lot. I wound up being on Hardball all the time. Um, I wound up being on Larry Kudlow's show on CNBC, debating like three conservatives. Um, and then I wound up being a fill-in for lots of MSNBC hosts. And I think, you know, when Phil Griffin and later Cesar Condi saw that, you know, she's a pretty good fill-in, um, but Phil first um, started giving me opportunities. I did a dayside show called The Read Report that ultimately got canceled. I did a weekend show called AM Joy that had four years of a really great run. And now I'm doing this primetime show. So it's been a pretty interesting, circuitous route. Joy Reid, political analyst, author, and host of The Read Out on MSNBC. We'll get back to that conversation I had with her recorded earlier this week in just a moment. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. 
Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Let's get back to my conversation recorded earlier this week with MSNBC political commentator and author Joy Reid. But what fascinated you about about politics and covering politics, what still does fascinate you about that? Because some, uh, of course, a lot in the the audience that uh, are listening to us and just normal Americans get (laughs) very down on politics, very jaded, with good reason uh, that uh, we've really got a mess here in in many ways. It it is a mess. But, you know, politics in many ways is both the problem and the solution. I'm a history buff and have long been, you know, since I was a kid. And, you know, like I said, I, you know, sitting up and watching Nightline, you know, that's my mom and I bonded because she was a news junkie too. And I kind of inherited that from her, her just kind of interest in, and we would even sit up and watch the Sunday shows. We'd watch Meet the Press. We'd watch all of that stuff. And Washington Week, you know, we would sit up and watch that stuff. That and sports is pretty much all I watched growing up as a kid. But because I know history, I understand that as Dr. King used to say, you can't necessarily... Um, convince a brutal sheriff not to hurt you and not to hurt your community. But you can replace the sheriff. And replacing the sheriff is politics. You know, for Black folks, for for African-Americans coming out of enslavement, which was hundreds of years of being treated as property, the first immediate thing that freedmen did was register to vote. They were eager to join the system that had consigned them to chattel status because they understood that politics is power. You know, the ability to vote, access to the ballot. That is the way that you can change the systems that are hurting you. And and I wish that more Americans recognize that. You know, we don't have compulsory voting. So the U.S. has the lowest voter turnout of any industrialized Western nation because Americans tend to write off politics as a rich man's game or too boring or too um, corrupt, but practiced well, politics can get you everything that you want to need. And, and if you recognize it, it's the only key to power for ordinary people, especially people who aren't rich. So I'm obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with voting. I'm obsessed <laughs> with getting everyone to vote. It's the only way to change your circumstances, really, from the school board all the way up to the president. I wanted to go uh, back uh, to your, uh, refer to your latest book, uh, now a few years old, from 2019. You mentioned you're working on another one, but the one from 2019, which spent a number of weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, The Man Who Sold America, Trump and the Unraveling of the American Story. Of course, a a lot of has been written about uh, the Trump years and is still being written about those, uh, those years. You, in this book, I understand, delved into... Trump's uh, pre-presidential background. What aspects of his early life did you find most interesting to discover and write about? You know, it's interesting. I interviewed a lot of people who were around Trump at that time. Most of them were still fans of his. And there was one person in particular, one source I spoke to, who said the reason that they gravitated toward Donald Trump is that for them growing up as a young Republican, it was only Ronald Reagan who gave Republicanism a sense of cultural cool, that gave Republicanism access to Hollywood, that made Republicanism a celebrity status thing. And Mm. they hated the fact that after Reagan, 
Republicanism just didn't have that sense of cultural goal. It just, it had lost the culture and they thought Trump brought it back, you know? And, and there was this sense that his being a celebrity, because let's just be clear, Donald Trump was never a really great businessman. You know, he inherited $317 million. Hard not to be rich when you do that. He then turned around and lost $900 million of the fortune that he created. And then the, for, you know, the fortune that he really created through his father. Um, so when he was cast in The Apprentice, it wasn't because he was a great businessman. It was because he had a, a sort of cultural celebrity flair. It's been his acting ability, his ability to project celebrity and to project wealth that has always been his superpower, not his actual ability to create wealth. Most of his golf clubs lose money. You know, most of his sort of luxurious lifestyle is debt financed, even though he doesn't repay the debts. And so I'm fascinated by his ability to kind of mesmerize people, to mesmerize banks who know he's defaulted on previous debts into giving him more money, to mesmerize his followers, including people in the military, knowing he's calling them suckers and losers. They've got to know deep down that he's really doing that, but they don't care. And even with very religious people, to get them to add him to their worship, to kind of worship him. He's created a religion around himself. There aren't that many kind of political figures, American political figures who've ever really done that. Ronald Reagan did to a certain extent, George W. Bush to a certain extent. There was the whole Jesus camp kind of moment. But I, I think that's what I kind of find fascinating about him. You know, he's kind of a mega George Santos, <laughs> you know, he yeah. kind of created and invented himself and it's worked. Yeah. And, and as as we walk our way up to having you talk about 2024, I want to, because, I mean, many are seeing parallels. Of course, uh, 2024 is not 2016. But when we talk about 2016, uh, it's important to understand because Trump faces more establishment rep- opponents this time. Uh, we had in this week, uh, we're talking, uh, Nikki Haley declaring uh, her candidacy uh, for 2024 in the Republican Party, the former U.N. ambassador. Um, how did Trump manage to overcome establishment Republican opponents, uh, Jeb Bush and his bags of money? Remember that <laughs> back in the day uh, and and come to dominate a party that he had. And, you know, his early life, he had shunned the Republican Party for much of his life. And, and can that be repeated? Well, yeah, he was a Democrat, right? I mean, I don't think he's ever really had had a political belief system. I'm not sure Trump believes anything other than he believes in Donald Trump, <laughs> you know, believes Donald Trump should have things and have power. Um, he first of all, you have to remember that there were about 12 candidates. So he only needed about 30, 35 percent of the vote to be to get the nomination. He, he didn't dominate them in that way. Um, he just needed, you know, a third. And he got that. Um, and also, he has the one thing that none of the people who are likely to run now, you know, Nikki Haley, who's de- Ron DeSantis, who's very likely to declare soon, his former um, Secretary of State, um, Mike Pence, all the rest. What he has that they don't have is charisma. Now, it's negative charisma because the cruelty of Donald Trump is kind of his biggest feature. But that actually is attractive to a lot of Republicans who are frustrated um, with their status, their sort of social status, and they want an aggressive candidate. 
But he has yeah, charisma. You're, you're tap, tapping into the politics of, of grievance. Absolutely. And I think when you're when you have a sense of social grievance that the culture has gotten away from you, that demographically you're not winning, that, you know, I think part of the zeal against abortion is this panic, this kind of demographic panic that white Americans are going to be a minority and something has to be done to stop that, to kind of force the demographics back in their direction. Trump kind of gives you this promise that somehow he can do that. And when he says make America great again, let's just be clear. He means make white America great again. He doesn't mean make all of America great again. And even the black figures he pulls around him are people like Herschel Walker, people who exude the opposite of sort of greatness, intellectual greatness, you know, rhetorical greatness. The greatness that you see in a Barack Obama, Trump despises that. And so do his followers. Can he get the nomination again? Absolutely. Because his followers, they are not just political fans. It's a religion. And there are still going to be a good third of the party that stick with him no matter what. It's a religion at this point. So he could get the nomination easily. Yeah. Uh, Let's switch to the other side of the equation. Um, You are uh, a liberal political commentator. uh, And and let's ask you about Joe Biden. Uh, Is he the Democratic Party's best shot at retaining the White House in 2024? I believe if he runs, he will get the nomination. No one is going to challenge a successful sitting president. This is not a Jimmy Carter situation um, where you saw um, Senator Kennedy challenge him. This isn't going to happen. If Biden runs, he'll get the nomination and the numbers won't have changed. I think he would still be the odds on favor to be president again, because what you have to remember is politics and elections are just math. And as David Plouffe, um, one of the geniuses behind President Obama's rise um, to the White House, had made it very clear, it's an 80-40 game. Whoever the Democrat is, is going to get 80% of the non-white vote, meaning 90% of the African-American vote, about 80% of the Jewish American vote, 60 to 70% of the Latino vote, even if it's 60 Um, Asian Americans are now 70-30 Democratic leaning. Name the Republican candidate who can eat into that. It certainly isn't Ron DeSantis, who is at war with everything Black and everything LGBTQ. That ain't going to happen. And no Democrat is going to get more than about 40% of the white vote. This is just the way it's been since the 60s. But the one part of the white American vote that is starting to move are white voters under 30 And because particularly of the extreme anti-LGBTQ positions and also the extreme, the extremity of what the Supreme Court did in stripping women of their right to choose, that vote is going to continue to go toward the Democrats. And those numbers ain't changing. So I think if it's Trump v. Biden again, Biden wins. Yeah. And aside from Trump, setting him aside for the moment, uh, which one or two Republicans do you think have the best shot at, at the nomination? You know, we, it's, a, it's a long it's a long trail to to, to the uh, nomination. So a lot, a lot could happen. I don't have to tell you that. But um, who, who else who else uh, jumps out in the Republican column? Well, I have to say, I you know, Nikki Haley, I think, exemplifies the pro- the biggest problem that that Republicans have had, which is that. 
they both despise Donald Trump, but they also kowtowed to Donald Trump. They completely knelt to him. And she did. She claimed she would never support someone like him. She tells her children not to be like him. And then she joined his administration and was an apologist for him. All of them were. Even Mitt Romney, who's standing up now and trying to regain the kind of dignity of his party, they all knelt to Trump. So it could be somebody we haven't seen yet. Even Ron DeSantis, he dressed his children up in Trump onesies. That was his campaign. And his other positions are, yeah, that was his campaign. He dressed his kids up in these little onesies and built a little wall. He knelt to Trump. And so getting away from Trump is going to be hard for all of these candidates. It could be somebody we haven't seen yet. I haven't seen a, a political star in the Republican Party yet. I know the media is very hot on DeSantis for now. Um, but there have been candidates like that before. Marco Rubio was the old Ron DeSantis. and He went nowhere. So we'll see. Um, I think DeSantis will have a lot of money. Um, I think he is the leader of the cultural revolution against modernity um, and against Black history and um, the emerging non-white majority. He's now the leader of that. So he has a good chance of getting the nomination. But once you emerge into a general election, all those people who you've said lack educational value, they ain't going to vote for you. That's the problem Republicans are going to have. Yeah. In in the final few minutes we have here, I, I feel we have to have your thoughts on January 6th, the aftermath of which continues uh, now more than two years after that attack of pro-Trump supporters on the U.S. Capitol uh, to try and prevent the transfer of power to uh, Joe Biden. Um, what are your thoughts now with this bit of hindsight on how January 6th has changed this country temporarily or forever? I think it has changed it forever. Um, you know, even during the Civil War, our Capitol was not sacked. The Confederate flag never flew inside of the Capitol until January 6, 2021. Um, the only other, you know, entity to breach our Capitol was during the Eighth War of 1812, you know, in 1814. Um, and so I think that leaves a scar. The fact that we now know that there are a certain percentage of our fellow Americans who would overthrow the government over a political outcome, over a political race, which, by the way, isn't new. This happened in Wilmington, North Carolina in the 18, in the 19th century. This happened to Reconstruction governments all over the South. They were overthrown violently. This is nothing new in our history, but it's new in our modern history. And I think the fact that we now know that there are Americans who have divorced themselves from democracy and don't believe in it and simply want power and will align with organizations like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys to get it should put us all on alert from now on going forward. Yeah. And election workers, God bless them. It's not supposed to be a dangerous job, but now it is. And so I, I think we are on edge going into 2024 and rightly so. I can only hope and pray that you know, sanity comes back. And, and the last thing I'll say on this is I remember staying up um, during the year 2000 election um, and, you know, I put the kids to bed and went to bed thinking, you know, uh, that I knew the outcome. I knew that Al Gore was going to be the president. I was like, we're going to do all these things on climate. It's going to be great. The deep disappointment that, you know, people felt in 2000 didn't lead to a, re a rebellion. Um, I literally quit the news business to try to do my part to prevent George W. Bush from being president again after the Iraq war. He became president anyway. 
I, I can't recall ever having the desire to overthrow his government and to say he's, he should be not the, you know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's terrifying. Disappointment in politics is part of the game. You know, it's part of it. Yeah. And when you support a candidate, it's like supporting a Super Bowl team. Sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And you just got to, we've got to mature enough to walk away from a political outcome we don't like and not feel like we have to beat a policeman with a flagpole. Well, thank you very much for joining us uh, this hour. Joy Reed, a political analyst at MSNBC, host of The Readout. Uh, Joy will be speaking this Sunday afternoon, February 18th, at Hancher Auditorium on the University of Iowa campus. It's a free event, but you do need tickets, uh, those available online or at the Hancher box office. Joy Reed, we look forward to having you here in Iowa. Thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you so much, Ben. And I'm really looking forward to going to my my second home. (laughs) I'll just call it my second home, the, the wonderful state, the beautiful state of Iowa. Cannot wait to be there. Today's River to River, produced by Samantha McIntosh, the executive producer of Iowa Public Radio's talk shows, Catherine Perkins. Hey, make sure you subscribe to the River to River podcast with your favorite podcast app. Listen to past shows or uh, listen also by downloading the IPR app or by going to our website, iowapublicradio.org. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.